Well, we finished First Peter last week, and so we're kind of in a little bit of a transition for the next few weeks. Uh, I want to preach on something that has been going... Uh, I, let me rephrase that. That's not a good way to phrase that. I want to spend a few weeks on something that we have worked on earlier this year. If you remember, I've mentioned a few times that there's been a lot of things going on in the background, and one of the things that has been... Uh, Proceeding is that the elders worked diligently earlier this year on a new mission statement for the church. And the old mission statement was good, but we felt like that we could do some tweaking to the new mission statement. And that's actually what I want to talk about today. The new mission statement is this up on the screen. It says uh, the Providence Bible Church exists to worship God in spirit and truth and grow in knowledge through discipleship and fellowship, serve one another in the community, and share the gospel. And so I know what you're thinking already. Oh, great. He's going to be talking about a mission statement. Mission statements are boring for the most part, aren't they? Uh, anybody ever pay any attention to the mission statement that businesses have in their businesses? Uh, nobody does. I don't even think the owners do most of the time. We we exist to provide good service. So really, <laughs> when's that going to start? You know, but that sort of thing. But uh, mission statements are very important. They're necessary for organizations. Uh, uh, they tell you why you exist, and they're they're essential for organizations for the life of the organization. Now, there's a lot of confusion about what a mission statement is and what it accomplishes. And I want to give you something real quick to, to help you understand a little bit about a mission statement. A mission statement is answers the question for the church, what are the main priorities of a church? This is what we're trying to answer by rolling out this mission statement. What are the main priorities? Why do we exist as a gathered church together? Um, since these priorities are given to us by God, then what do you think the mission statement of all the different churches should look like? They should look pretty similar, shouldn't they? And as I was showing people the mission statement, a couple of people said, yeah, so-and-so church looks a lot like that. I said, well, duh. It came from God, right? I didn't say that, but uh, but um, it came from God. And so most mission statements for churches should look very similar. The real difference, and this is where it's important, the real difference is how the congregation works out those priorities in the life of the church. Let me see if I can explain it this way. The way a church works out the mission statement in a large European city in an urban setting is going to be much different than the way a church works on the same mission statement in a rural Muslim village. Wouldn't you say? It's going to, it's going to look very different. Added to that, the fact that God is stitching congregations together, that's, that's New Testament languages. Knitting is actually the word the Bible uses. He's knitting congregations together tells you that just as I'm looking at it, a great diversity of bodies here, there's going to be a great diversity of bodies of the church. Makes sense, doesn't it? Total sense. And so what, what uh, works good for one person is not going to work good. Some of you, you need nine hours of sleep a night. Some of you work well on five or six. 
It just all depends upon who you are and the way you're wired. And that's the same thing with churches. Now, I want to do this. And, and I want, uh, hopefully this will help you out. I want to give you some benefits. You might be saying to yourself, why on earth, pastor, are you spending time on a mission statement? The answer is at least threefold. And I want to give those to you because you're going to know where I'm coming from with all this. Number one, a mission statement keeps you focused on what is important. Now, would you, would you tell, would you agree with me that there are many good things that we can involve, be involved with? There are. There's many good things that we can be involved in. But God has given us certain things to be involved with. Let me see if I can give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. You'll understand this if you're a parent. Let's say that you have a child, and the child has a, an extremely messy room. It looks, like, um, it looks like a third world country in there, in the room. And you tell this child, okay, I want you to go clean your room. And they disappear, and you're, you're all happy, thinking, oh, wow, they're actually cleaning the room. Pretty soon they come out, the dog's on a leash, and they say, look, Mom, I groomed and fed the dog. Aren't you proud of me? Now, let me ask you something. Is it good that your child took time to groom the dog? The answer is yes, but is that what you asked them to do? The answer is no. And that is what we have to watch for in a church. There are good things that churches can be involved in, but are they the things that God asks us to be involved in? For example, we get requests all the time here at the church from organizations uh, to, to be involved in things, such as transportation for elderly people and sick people, handing out water bottles at the state capitol, adopt a highway, or any of these, any number of things. Now, all of these are good things, aren't they? But we have to ask ourselves, we have a mission statement, how does this fit in with our mission statement? Now, what tends to happen in, in a, okay, a little transparency here, I'm completely good with this, is when somebody is all on board with something that may not be the main thing their church has been called to do, and I say, I don't think that we ought to be involved in that, but thank you so much. I wouldn't say it like that, but that's what I'm thinking. They might get upset with me. You know what? That's perfectly fine because I answer to God, and I'm, I'm supposed to be moving us in a direction that God wants us to go. The same could be said for church activities. For example, it, uh, gospel sing-alongs, movie nights, fellowships. All of these things are good, aren't they? But we have to ask ourselves, are these necessary for life of the church? And, and I'll be honest with you, sometimes the answer is yes, but not all the time. I, I know churches that... Um, seems like they have a gospel sing-along all the time. Uh, I know churches that seem to have fellowships all the time, or they're always doing this big activity or that big activity, or some of the churches are known as the big production church, and they're putting on the big productions. And while all these things may be good and fine, um, I'm, I'm actually bleeding into another point here, and that is that it keeps you balanced, okay? Because what happens is these churches, they get unbalanced. All the, all the activity of the people of the church uh, is focused on the next big production, 
the next big musical, the next big fellowship, the next gospel sing. And, and that's that, what that shows you is that these congregations have a certain bent. I have a bent. Heather asked me a question yesterday. She didn't realize I was going to be using it as an illustration. But uh, she said, what are the things outside of church that you're interested in? Right? Well, what I'm interested in is going to be really boring to probably about 95% of you. I'm really interested in woodworking, furniture building. I get a na- probably get a name in from Jerry and a couple others, and that's about it, right? The rest, the women are sitting there thinking, that is just so totally boring. And their bent is not that way, but mine is. And that's the same thing with congregations. Congregational bents run a certain way because of how God has placed individuals in their church. And you need a mission statement to keep you from becoming unbalanced. Sure, we minister to our strengths. We, we work to shore up our weaknesses. We're called to evangelize as well as do Bible studies. But again, some of the things I mentioned before, the gospel sings, the fellowships and all that sort of stuff, um, we have to be careful that we, we stay balanced. And let me give you a third benefit before I, I, I move into the, the, the meat of the message. And that is a mission statement is an evaluation tool. It is so important to have an evaluation tool. I've used mission statements for over two decades in ministry, beginning when I was a youth pastor. I would get, uh, I had 12 people that I worked with as youth volunteers. I'd get them together, uh, usually about three times a year, and I'd say, okay, how are we doing? Here's our mission statement of the youth ministry. How are we doing? What did we do that would fit into any of these categories in the last four or five months? And it's an evaluation tool, and it's a very good evaluation tool to help you ask questions such as, how is our evangelism as a church? Um, are we serving one another well? How can we improve our worship? Are our people actually worshiping together? And, and all these sorts of questions. And so a mission statement is, is a great evaluation tool. Now, let me say another couple things. From the mission statement, we craft our priorities. And I'm going to roll out priorities uh, next week. I'm going to talk about a couple of them today. I'm going to roll out priorities next week. But, but we craft our priorities. And what this does, this answers the question, how do we accomplish that mission? You saw the four things. We'll have it in print for you and that sort of thing. How do we accomplish those four things as a church? And so we'll be rolling out priorities as time goes along. I'll talk about two of them today. Our ministry priorities flow from the mission statement. It's a list of activities that we need to perform in order to accomplish God's mission. So there, you have now learned more than you ever wanted to know about ministry philosophy. The next question you have to ask are what are the big things that God wants us to accomplish and um, what He wants us to be doing and where do we find this in Scripture would be the second part of that question. I rolled out the four things and we're going to talk about one today and our Scripture that we're going to use is um, Matthew 22, but we're not going to get there just yet. Okay? Well, yeah, let's go ahead and um, we'll read it again together. Okay? So hopefully you have Matthew 22 out. Because I want to show you two, fo- two texts that we're going to focus on. 
The first passage, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is likened to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. Now, let me say something. In other scriptures, it's very clear that the Ten Commandments, what he's speaking of here, are are eternal. They reveal the will of God. They reveal God Himself. And so, therefore, Jesus says, if you want to sum up the Ten Commandments, the eternal will of God, it's to love God with all your heart, soul, and might, and love your neighbors yourself. And those are two very important, wonderful things. If they, if they sum up the law and the prophets, then I think it's very important for us to make sure that this is one of our controlling texts, right? The second one is found later on in Matthew. Turn to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. We're going to look at verse number 18. Matthew 28 and verse number 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority on heaven, on, on, I'm sorry, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now this is another passage that every church uses, isn't it? And, and rightfully so. Every church uses this. this. is called the Great Commission, in case you were wondering. And, and this is a very important passage, and it's got some elements of church life that we need to look at and cover, and we'll do that in about two weeks. We're going to cover Matthew 22, 37 to 40 this week and next week, and then we'll hit the next one. But these are two passages. Now, you might be saying to yourself, why are you covering this one before the Great Commission? Because I feel a pastor like the Great Commission might be um, more important. Let me tell you why I chose this, this order. Matthew 22, 37 to 40, that's eternal. The Great Commission is temporary. There's no need for the Great Commission in heaven, is there? And so therefore I decided to cover the orders of priorities that way. So today we're going to, after that very long introduction, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about worship. Now, here's my first question. What is worship? A very simple question, isn't it? And some of you, you're either falling asleep or you're really thinking about it. But the, the answer is, that's a really hard question to answer, isn't it? What is worship? Well, let me give you a definition Worship is an expression of reverence or adoration to the Lord. That's a pretty good definition, isn't it? I was, I was reading a little bit of, uh, about worship to the, over the, the week and actually looking at some biblical theologies. And the Lexham Theological Wordbook says it this way, says that worship is a reverential response of creation to the all-encompassing magnificence of God. I love that. Isn't He magnificent? Isn't He wonderful? 
This morning, uh, in my prayer time early this morning, I, I decided just to take a, uh, some time and just thank the Lord and worship Him and do it um, do, do it two, twofold. One, from the blessings that He's given me. And secondly, to think about the Psalms where it talks about all creation praising Him for all of His wonderful attributes. And when you, when you look at creation and you see the glory of God, He, he has all-encompassing magnificence. Think about this. Uh, do you remember if you were in my class last week, the book of Exodus, we talked about how that, um, that God fought against almost 2,000 gods of the Egyptians. The last god that he fought against was Pharaoh himself, who was a god in Egypt, and he drowned the whole Egyptian army in the, in the Red Sea. Remember that? And what happened next? The very next thing that we see is that the children of Israel are on the bank of the Red Sea after the event happened, and they worship God. Who is like you, O Lord, among all the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? That's called the Song of Moses. And they're praising God for His wonderful works. And so they see God work. They see Him in all His glory, and they're just they're just drawn to worship Him. You ever been there? What animates worship? What is the driving force behind worship? Is it Mike? How well he plays the guitar? Is it, is it, is it the, the, the musical voices? What animates worship? The answer is that worship is the response of the heart to the revelation of God. Worship comes from the heart. Look at Romans 11.33. Now let me explain this. If you've read Romans, it's like all of Paul's books. Paul writes an epistle. He spends the first half of the epistle unpacking the doctrine of God, unpacking the greatness of God, and the second half of it is, because of all this truth, here's how you're to act, right? Well, here is Paul in Romans unpacking the glories of salvation, and he can't help himself right before chapter 12, which begins application. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How inscrutable or searchable in judgments. How inscrutable are His ways. He just can't help Himself when He meditates on who God is in all His glory. Worship comes from the heart. It's, it's a response to who God is. That's, that, this is pure worship here. There's no tune. There's no music. Nobody started plucking some kind of stringed instrument here. It is an explosion of praise from contemplation of who God is, the glories of His God, His salvation, and what God has given, what John was talking about today, undeserving sinners. Isn't He awesome? That causes worship. I want you to notice two things about what I just covered. First of all, worship comes, it's directly proportionate to our knowledge of God. And that's why we're using Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven: You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with all your mind. Now, here, here, here is how we can explain this. Men, what do you do since you love your wife? 
You should be doing this every day. My guess is you did it more when you were younger. It's hard to tell. But men, if you love your wives, you study her. You learn her, especially when you're dating, you didn't know anything about her. You find out what she likes. You find out what gives her joy. You notice all the wonderful things about her personality and, and how different she is from you. And, and it just gives you joy and you learn more and more about her and it causes you to love her more, doesn't it? We do the same thing with, with any kind of interests or hobbies. Um, I've had people tell me more about hobbies that I'm not interested in than you can ever imagine. And, and you would not believe the amount of money people can spend on obscure hobbies. But they get interested in it and there's more knowledge. Heather's dad, uh, he was in the clocks. And, and his, his house is literally like a museum of clocks. And, and he would walk and he would show me this clock and it would look like every other clock. And he'd start saying, this clock is from here. It might be from Germany. And, and this is what's special about this clock. And one of the ones I was most interested in is anybody ever heard of an Atmos clock? Probably not. Most of you haven't. They're, they were made uh, mainly in the early 20th century, and they, they were mechanical, but they never needed to be wound because they wound themselves by atmospheric pressure and temperature changes. Cool clock. And, and he had all these clocks, and, and when you start learning about these clocks, they became really, really cool. It's just like astronomy. This is my, my hobby, and one of my hobbies is astronomy. You, you know, you look at the Hubble pictures, and everybody thinks that when they look through a telescope, they're going to see something like Hubble. I got news for you. When you look through a telescope, everything's the same color for the most part. Okay? But what's cool about astronomy and looking through my telescope is the knowledge of what I'm looking at. And when you love God with all your heart, soul, and might, you are going to learn about Him. And you're going to learn about Him through studying the Bible, through reading the Bible, through listening to sermons, so that you can know your God. And this is why one of our priorities in this church is faithful preaching. When you walk in here, you should expect to hear the Word of God read, prayed, and expounded. The goal of preaching, in part is to help you grow in your love for the Lord your God and help you to grow in your love for His people. And the second thing I want you to notice about what we said about worship is it has nothing to do with music. I haven't even really mentioned music too much, have I? Worship has nothing to do with music. It really bothers me. No offense, Mike. Okay, It really bothers me that now... The guy who leads music is called the worship leader. Because what that does is that, I'm trying to think of the word, it escapes me right now, but it'll come to me. It takes all of worship and and brings it down to one little aspect of worship. And that's all it is. He's not the worship director. Technically, I am, according to Scripture, right? Because the saints get together every Sunday in worship. But I'm not going to have that fight with him. If he wants to call himself that, that's fine. I'm just kidding, Mike. (laughs) Um, It has nothing to do with music. Now, some of you are going to be sitting there saying, "I, I, I disagree with you. 
There are people who believe that music is so inseparable from worship. It's critical what style you use. And if you don't use the right music, and the music speaks in the vernacular, in any given group of people, you somehow limit their worship. And if you don't have smoke machines and lights, and you don't do the right song in the right key, in the contemporary church, music often dominates. It's long, and it's loud, and it's repetitious. And what it is, it's an effort to move people's feelings and emotions in the direction of worship. There are many people who assume that music is the origin or source of worship, and that's an illusion. It's an illusion that says that certain styles of music produce worship. Certain tunes and certain worship uh, arrangements induce worship, and other ones somehow limit it. Now, I want you to know this. As, as strange as it may seem, I love music. If you come to my office, I can show you with all 400 watts in that little bitty office over there. Carol will tell you, she's down at the end of the hallway and she hears it. But music as such has nothing to do with worship. Let me me tell you something else. Music can't produce worship. It can't induce worship. Music is not the origin of 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 music. I read this in in a book this week and it's great. Music is not the beginning of worship, it's the end. It's the result. It's it's the end of worship. Um yeah, I, I love music, but I do not need music to worship. And there's some music that's not helpful to me in my worship. I'm not going to tell you what kind that is. Sometimes seriously folks, Sometimes I wish you could experience um, a little bit of, of my my life and what what goes on in me on Sunday mornings. The the reason I say that is that there is a crescendo that that builds in my heart every week. I I fill my mind, my I fill my heart with the glory of God every week. I'm studying Joshua this week. And, and again, Matthew 22, we're going to be talking about fellowship uh, in, and service type issues in, in the next sermon. And I'm, I'm learning, I'm reading about God, I'm meditating on God, and it just, I get excited to teach truths about God. And so when, when, the, when the music starts, it's like a floodgate opens for me, or for you electricians, it's like a capacitor. The music just flips the switch. What's in my heart begins to come out. Fortunately, Ted's the only guy that gets to hear me sing, and hopefully he doesn't hear me too loudly. But seriously, folks, music is not what causes worship. Worship starts here. I know I'm beating this with a, like a, a dead horse, but I have to. More Music is the expression of what is in your heart. And and I'm going somewhere with this. And where I'm going with this is that you need to turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, we're familiar with Romans 12, 1 and 2. Now remember... Paul has just spent 11 chapters of Romans explaining the glories of salvation. And here is 
his at beginning of his application. This is the very beginning of his application. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, I was tempted to preach this whole verse today, but I'm only going to focus on spiritual worship because literally what he's telling us is all of life is worship. But it's spiritual worship. Now, where does that start? It starts, is um, worship is strictly spiritual. It is, it is internal. It's not external. It's music or no music, beautiful music or not so beautiful music. True worship be, originates in the soul. It's spiritual, and that's where it begins. And this is worship. And Paul says that when it begins in your heart, and it's from a knowledge of God, God is, is He accepts it. It's acceptable to Him. And this is the kind of worship that God desires. Do you remember in John chapter 4 when he's when Jesus is in uh, Samaria and he's talking to the woman at the well and she begins the worship war and he says to her, the day will come when you're not going to look on this mountain, talk about Mount Gerizim or that mountain, which would be Mount Zion where the temple mount is. He says, rather, you shall worship God in spirit and in truth. God is seeking people to worship Him in what? Spirit and truth. Those two things go together. And I'm going to say this, um, the spirit part and the truth part are intertwined. It is when God opens your heart to understand and you become spiritually alive, that when you study the truths about God, those move your spirit towards worship. Does that make sense? Because you, you, God is just so awesome and magnificent and, and so otherworldly. And so remember, worship is an act by which we offer praise to God. It's not a mood that we put ourselves in it's not a it's not a feeling that can be induced by the beauty uh, of some kind of music that we hear worship is an activity which we give to God he's the audience he's the one to whom we offer the worship and therefore we need to offer him worship that is acceptable to him john macarthur wrote a book about worship and he said this he said truth is always at the heart of authentic worship. Every kind of enthusiasm or emotion that is not inseparably linked to the truth is ultimately meaningless. Let that sink in. Your emotion that you feel towards God, your enthusiasm that you feel towards God, had better be linked to truth, or else it's going to be disastrous. We, we see that um, in uh, the book of 1 Samuel. Do you remember when the Philistines were coming up against the children of Israel? And the children of Israel were dominated by the Philistines, and they thought, you know what we're going to do? We're going to bring the Ark of the Covenant. And so they bring the Ark of the Covenant. They're actually treating the Ark of the Covenant like it's some kind of magical genie. 
and and they they're they're literally being legalists here, saying if we do X and Y, God will do Z. And in the Bible, if you read that narrative, it says that the Philistines feared because the Israelites yelled with a great shout. They had this confidence that has no basis in truth because they were disobedient people. They weren't following the Lord, and God allowed them to be defeated. Remember that? And you have to be very careful that all of your emotions about God, I've I've seen it so often in people's lives, all your emotions about God have to be based in truth. So what is acceptable worship to God? It's worship that is spiritual, not physical, not just the voice, but it comes from the soul. It is that worship that rises out of the heart. And this is worship that is satisfying to God. And of course, Romans 12, 1 and 2 say nothing about music whatsoever. Music playing and singing is our physical response to, to the worship of the soul. Uh, but, but a worshiping soul is a worshiping soul, and it doesn't matter if there's music. It doesn't matter if, it, if it, you're singing it or if there's a tune in your head. It's just thanking God for who His person and His works and offering praise to Him. And so true worship then comes from the soul. <clears throat> now listen, and the more your soul grasps the glory and wonder of God, the more you will worship Him. Now, I agree, there is nothing more exhilarating than joyful than corporate worship when we're singing together. Isn't it wonderful? But it is only true worship to the degree that has infused your heart with an adoration of God. And the more you know God, the more you infuse it into your soul. And this brings us to two biblical priorities. I want to talk about them now. The first biblical priority in this church, because of what we know about worship, is going to be that we have faithful preaching. Faithful preaching. Okay? Faithful preaching is inseparable from biblical worship. John Stott wrote a book called Between Two Worlds. And he said the following. It's a long quote. I'm going to give snippets of it on the screen for you. He said this. He said... Word and worship belong indissolubly to each other. All worship is an intelligent and loving response to the revelation of God because it is the adoration of His name. Therefore, acceptable worship is impossible without preaching. Why? For preaching is making known the name of the Lord, and worship is praising the name of the Lord made known. Go back, if you will, and think about the Dead Sea incident, or Red Sea incident, how the children of Israel worshipped. Earlier in Exodus, Exodus um, chapter 3, God told Moses, I'm going to reveal my name. And so he's revealing his name in, to the children of Israel, and they're worshipping him, right? Okay, he goes on to say this. <clears throat> the two... I'm sorry, far from being an alien intrusion into worship, the reading and preaching of the Word are actually indispensable to it. The two cannot be divorced. Indeed, is there unnatural divorce, which accounts for the low, listen to what John Stott says, 
the, their unnatural divorce, uh, divorce between word and worship, he says, accounts for the low level of so much contemporary worship. Our worship is poor because our knowledge of God is poor. And our knowledge of God is poor because our preaching is poor. It is a, and there's more to this quote, and I'm going to finish it in just a second, but I want to say this. It is a shame to go into most contemporary, when I say contemporary, that I'm talking about mod, churches today, okay? I don't mean style-wise when I say contemporary. It is a shame when you go into so many churches and the word that they give is so trite and so shallow and so vapid and so temporal Six ways to help your marriage. Ten ways to raise your kids. Twelve ways to get good at your job. And it's it's like a self-improvement pep top. And never, never do they plumb the depths of the glory of God and talk about hard truths and great truths and, and all these different things. Your soul should sing the praises of God when God's Word is being preached. Let me finish the quote. But when the Word of God is expounded in it, I'm sorry, yeah, but when the Word of God is expanded in its fullness and the congregation begin to glimpse the glory of the living God, they bow down in solemn awe and joyful wonder before His throne. It is preaching which accomplishes this, the proclamation of the Word of God in the power of the Spirit of God. And that is why preaching is unique and irreplaceable. And that is why one of the priorities in this church is going to be faithful preaching. My goal every Sunday morning is to give you you the Word of God in such a way that it does several things. You feast on the riches of His grace. You bow down and worship Him. And and, um, you respond. There's a change in your mind and in your heart because of what is being preached. My goal for you is not to have an emotional experience and to feel good. Rather... It is to find spiritual nourishment through sound doctrine and faithful preaching because when that occurs, we accomplish the second priority, which is passionate worship. The worship that we owe God in every part of our lives. And we want our hearts to be fully engaged in that work so that as we go about our jobs, we attend our classes, we shepherd our families, and we gather to hear God's Word. And yes, we even raise our voices in song. We want to be driven by a passion for Jesus Christ. What greater thing is there? All I was so tempted as a doxology to read Revelation 4. I'm going to read a different doxology today. Where all the saints in Revelation 4 and 5, what do they do? First of all, you see them giving glory and praise to God for His work of creation. Chapter 5, glory and praise to God or for, to Jesus for His work of salvation. Because they see, the Paul says that right now our eyes of our mind are clouded. And one day they will not be. And when they're not, we're going to gaze. And I'm telling you, just like the tabernacle, God's presence was the center of the congregation of the Israelites. So the throne room of God is the center of heaven. And we can't help when we get to heaven but to glimpse 
glimpse at God because He's so awesome. You say, what do we do in heaven? I'll tell you what you'll do. In large part, you're going to be drawn like a fly to a light. That's not a great analogy, is it? <laughs> I can't think of a better one. Mosquito to, mosquito to your sweaty body or something. I don't know. But you're going to be drawn to God because He's so awesome. You have never seen anything like the throne of God. And when you experience it, you won't want to take your eyes off of it. And so today, don't take your eyes off of God. When you go from here, don't say, well, I heard a, a, a mediocre sermon today. That's good enough. Or I heard a great Sunday school lesson. That's good enough. Get in the Word of God. Read books about God, about the Bible and His Word. Get good devotional books. Read devotional books. And by all means, listen to sound sermons throughout the week so that Sunday morning, when we gather as saints, we worship God with all of our heart and soul and might. And this time, we're not doing it in the shower. We're singing together as a congregation, right? I can't even sing in the shower, by the way, without somebody saying, you you really need to not do that. (laughs) Do you know your God? We have so many resources. There are so many online Bible studies. There are so many sermons, tremendous preachers that you can listen to, and books, and the the Word itself. Do you know your God? Get to know Him and it'll transform the corporate worship experience that we have here on Sunday mornings. Lord, may PBC, Providence Bible Church, be filled with the Word and ablaze for the glory of God. Amen.